Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, Team TSL. It is producer Jeff. I'm coming to you from Hilton Head, South Carolina. Um, actually, a lot of the uh, TSL team has taken the week off, um, but of course, we always keep our feet as active as we can. And this week, our amazing intern Jess put together a beautifully curated episode of important moments from some of our guests over the last year. You know, this is kind of a greatest hits highlight situation featuring, you know, John August and Marty Noxon and Kemp Powers and Mike Jones and Ed Solomon and just some of our, our greatest guests on the show. So um, if you like what you're hearing in this episode, we highly encourage you to go back and listen into the full thing. Um, I will link um, or at least note every guest in the description below in case you want to go hear more. And uh, we hope you enjoy the episode. Is there anything else in terms of a satisfying world that you kind of hold in your head or just innately know you need to um, make sure is in the script in terms of world building? Like this is a satisfying world. I want to be in it. Well, that sense that like the world existed yesterday and it'll exist tomorrow, that it's not just there, you know, while we're seeing only what the character is seeing, the sense that like it exists beyond the edges of of the frame. And um, it's, again, you sort of know it when you know it, but we, we feel like uh, it's just convenient that all these things are, are here in a certain way. That's where it gets to be a little bit frustrating. Like you sense you couldn't walk off with one of those other characters. Um, and, and maybe characters are a way to really think about it is that if it feels like all the characters we're meeting are there only to service our central character's journey that they are they're going to stop everything and deal with this deal with a hero in, in their way I don't really believe it in, in real life most characters aren't going to be interested in the hero and there's going to be what is ordinary life going to be like for those people having a sense of what that is is really important even if we don't get to see it it can inform the choices they're making in the scenes you talked earlier about deciding the rules, like you have a genre like a Western and then this rule is in, this rule is, rule is out. How, what is the process of creating those new rules or, or adjusting those rules? And as a second part of that, when you're writing it and you realize this rule doesn't work, mm-hmm. what is that process? Yeah, hopefully you're hitting that pretty early on. You're, you're figuring out sort of like, okay, these are the kinds of things I'm going to need to be able to do in this story. And if I can't do that, that's going to be a problem. Um, but it, honestly, in most of the stuff I've written, you know, I, you know, again, I'm thinking back to the Arlo Finch books because there's three of them and uh, there's stuff that happens in book two and book three and things that are possible in those books that I had not anticipated when I sat down to write book one. Um, and yet the universe was, um, defined enough that I, I could really know what was possible and what was not going to feel like it could exist in the world of those books. And that worked. Uh, probably an uh, example that everyone would be more familiar with is Charlie's Angels. And so I did the, the first two Charlie's Angels movies. And when I sat down originally um, to meet on those, on doing that project, I was sitting on a couch with Drew Barrymore and across from Amy Pascal. And we just were talking about what they felt like. And I talked about how to me, Charlie's Angels felt like your annoying kid sister who somehow wins the Olympics um, and that you love her so much, but she also kind of drives you crazy. And that I saw the comedy being that these are women who are so good and so professional when they were on the clock, but just giant dorks when they were off the clock because cool people are not funny and dorks are funny. And so uh, we really just talked about the tone of what it felt like to be in that world. And plot came out of that. Um, and when we met with McGee to direct the movie, what got him the job was uh, he shot this little demo thing and just like what the world looked like. And it wasn't an action sequence. It was um, a PA sitting in this convertible um, with the wind blowing and it just felt right. It felt like Southern California sunshine. And so once we knew what that was, we could do everything else. And that really is world building. That's emotional world building. 
What's interesting about your, what you're saying too, and I think people don't think about this, is that you're always world building. Even if it's not a quote unquote new world or fantasy world or sci-fi world, you're always world building your main character's world because yeah. everybody sees it differently, experiences it differently. One main character, Southern California, is very different than this, you know, than Charlie's mm-hmm. Angels, right? That that it, all everything John's talking about applies also to everything. Yeah, the the new movie Minari, which I thought was just great, is a lot of world building. So it's it's a a specific Arkansas summer green thing, and it's the choice of what you're seeing, but also what you're not showing. There's like a lot of other stuff you know, you could have shown in that movie, and you're not. You're showing just this family, just this farm, and that's what world building is. It's it's that careful editing process of picking what we're going to see and what we're not going to see. As, as a mirror of the main character's interior, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's how Absolutely. he saw it at that age, right? If he Absolutely. went back there as an adult, I don't know that that's what he'd see, right? Nope. Not a bit. So giving you that child's uh, experience of it. Yeah, I mean, this is connected to newer writers, you know, looking for staffing. And, you know, you've staffed shows, you've read probably thousands of samples. Yeah. Um, what are some top reasons that you stop and toss aside a script you're reading and what are some top reasons that you feel totally compelled to keep reading and possibly staff a writer that's a really good question um i think there are a couple things that i mean i feel like when i feel like i've seen the show many times um and there's nothing about this approach that tells me pretty quickly that it's going to have a, a, a new enough angle that I'll want to, I'll want to keep reading. You know, if it's a cop procedural, just let me know in the first five pages, why, why this is going to be a little bit different than other cop procedurals. It doesn't have to be a whole scene. It doesn't, it could just be the character, you know, it could just be that this character, I always joke that, you know, um, a great main character is a is a character who's fully committed to a terrible plan. Mm. That's really good. <laughs> I love that deeply. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really good. Um, so, you know, whatever that plan is, if we, the audience, are like, whoosh, that is not going to work. But that person is like dead set on like, this is how, this is what the game is and I'm going to win it. And you're like, that's a... Ooh, that's a tough needle to thread, you know, then you're on board because you're like, either they're going to win and that's going to really, they're going to defy the odds or all the bad things that I think are about to befall them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Commence, you know. So uh, that's one thing I look for is just uh, that feeling of premise and a sort of unexpected quality to that premise. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I look for obviously is voice, you know, just um, that that character, you know, that that writer isn't cobbling together the voices of other writers. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, for a while I felt like everybody was trying to do Sorkin, you know, that was a while ago, but um, you know, and then everybody was trying to, you know, sort of whatever the flavor of the week is, <laughs> you know, people are sort of trying that voice on and, um, and, it's so important for writers to discover their own, their own voice. It's such a hard journey too. You know, it's, it's an easy thing for us, you know, who've been doing it for a while to say, but um, that is the, that is the work, right? That's the real work. Yeah, that's the real work. We thought we would start with rookie mistakes. (laughs) I just, first of all, the title alone. So good. Um, so what, you know, what are they? What are some of the common rookie mistakes that you see from emerging writers? Well, you know, the thing that I was curious about, and I love what you, I can do whatever you would like, but, you know, there's a list that's sort of the standard list that you could probably find on many different screenwriting websites or a lot of different podcasts. It's sort of the basic stuff, you know, make sure you read enough screenplays that are professionally written and absorb all you can and then read the lousy ones and learn from those too. And, you know, watch as many movies as you can. So there's, there's like that list, but I feel like that's sort of out there. So I've come up with sort of my now having done this for so long hybrid list, if you would be liking to hear that. Yes, please. You know, for me, again, I'm a producer, but I'm a story producer, but I still need to sell stuff. I still need to get the thing made. 
So a lot of my rookie errors are much more of a merger of craft and business, I would say. Um, I think it's, you know, it's so hard to write a script and you spend so much time investing in who these characters are and why this is happening to them and why they're going through this, that it's really hard to switch your brain over and say like, who's going to buy this and who's going to watch this and how many directors are out there that can actually get this thing made. So part of what I try to help young storytellers sort out is the sooner and the more you can be talking about audience and talking about who might buy this, it's, it's, it's better because at the end of the day, what happens is somewhere way down the road, you have to start making compromises and changes to your material to adhere to all this. And I would just rather do it at the beginning so that you're in control of it and that it's, it's a version you can spend more time sorting out and it's not two in the morning at a film festival when you're scrambling to like give up a cut to some financier who wants to buy it because you didn't cut it the way that somebody wanted it cut kind of thing. And that's true with screenwriting too. So, so for me, the first and foremost is like, you have to just remember it's a business as a rookie and it's sometimes icky and, and, you know, so many writers just hate talking about that because they're truly artists, but Again, find the people in your life who are happy to slay the dragons and be the business people in your life, but just accept that there is always going to be discussions of, again, audience, distribution, money. I mean, it's really funny. As much as I run all these labs, I, it doesn't matter who I'm speaking with, who I'm working with, what, what school they went to, what part of the world they're in, I say, what are the four things you need to make it in this business? And they always get the first one, like material, whether it's a script or you're, you're real or whatever. And, you know, obviously money, they always figure out like some version of money. They never get distribution. Nobody ever says, how am I going to get this thing out into the world so people can see my story and learn what I want to tell, right? And then the fourth one, because I'm a producer, is you got to have a plan. And not only that, a backup plan, because the first one most likely isn't going to happen and there's no winging it. So part of my rookie error list is in that space. You know, I really think that's all really important. And then I also have to ask myself, you know, in terms of sort of like, what's the end game, right? Why do I need to tell this story? And, and one of the big things that Meg and I learned years ago when we were working together at UCLA is I just don't think that young storytellers ask why enough. I really don't. And that means on every level, like, why are we going to this director? Why? But also, why do I need to tell this part of the story? Why do I need this to happen to this character right now? I mean, a while ago, a very good friend of mine who's had many movies made uh, invited me to a read through. And it was uh, a story based on this amazing woman who had done something so courageous and heroic. So she happened to be there, right? So we do this great read through and it went really well. And, um, and it was all about what happened to her and how it went down and who the bad guys were. And so many of the normal sort of checklist things were there. It was great. It was a good read through, you know, and people had notes and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I realized the story told the why, the how, but not the why she did it. Right. And she was there. So so after everybody gave notes, I just kind of raised my hand and I said, you know, I'm just really curious. Like it was a very different life choice for you to go off and do this. It was different than your family had raised you. It was way outside of your belief system. Why? And you should have seen her face. Like she perked right up and all she did was, I mean, go all the way back to her childhood and explain a few things that she believed about herself and the way she fit into the world and how this opportunity came up and nobody thought she could pull it off and she did it. And I looked over at that writer and he's like madly scribbling on his yellow pad, right? And I knew that we found that last 10% that most scripts never quite get to push through to that final little beautiful thing that is the difference between getting an actor and not getting made or getting small distribution or getting into no festivals versus like tons of festivals. So for me, it's, it's ask why. So we, again, we spend so much time figuring out the who and the how, but why are they doing it? Why does it have to happen is really important. And then also, I think we, I think after listening to as many of these amazing guests that you've had and podcasts, another rookie error is it's really hard to have enough patience. It's really hard, right? And 
you know, we were talking earlier that um, during pandemic, my son has learned how to surf and it's, you know, when you're 11, your body, you're not in control of it and you're trying to figure it out. And my husband uh, found this really great website that now is like our family mantra, which is this, there's four rules of surfing. And I think you can apply it to screenwriting. The first one is you want to do it, but you have no idea what you're doing and you definitely have no idea how to fix anything. The second one is you have a slight idea what you're doing, but you still have no idea how to fix it. The third one is you're kind of getting up on the board. So you have a better idea what you're doing wrong and you're starting to get a sense of how to fix it. And then the fourth one is very clear idea what you're doing wrong and a clear sense of how to fix it. So we'll sit at the dinner table and my son will say like, I think I'm at level two. I think I'm at level three and understanding sort of that patience of, of how long it takes to get the craft wrangled. It's hard. So many people walk away, I think too soon. I think they have many stories to tell and many characters for us to, to learn from. And they just have to know that their aspirations and their taste may not match their skill set yet, but it will come. Right. So that to me is massive. Um, Another one, which is why I'm happy to be here, is honestly every podcast episode that you have done up to this one is really the, the sooner a rookie figures out their baggage, like with a capital B, the better you are as a writer. And I think that, again, you're learning how to format and you're learning how to figure out structure and you're trying to sum up how to get to the end of that second act downfall and all these things that sometimes you forget, like the better the story is because you've infused you into it. So I think that the sooner you can be okay <laughs> with all of your damage, um, the better the material. And I think Meg, you and I saw that a lot at UCLA, like the sooner people sorted out all their heartache and instead put it on the page. And I'm not saying you had to write a weepy story. You could write a really hilarious story or a really mysterious story, a scary story. But as soon as you were on the page, it changed everything. One of our uh, listeners, Alexandra asked, how do you know what works in one medium and not in another? And what I'm really curious about is how do you know where you can, you know, you have to learn the rules and then how do you know where you can break them a little? Like I started out in playwriting and then I was at Pixar and sort of, I, I know exactly what you're talking about that. Like what is happening here? This is not so, but then figuring out how to maximize what you learned as a playwright and then applying that, those skills and that craft to other mediums. Like what is that like for you? Process has really been organic. It's it's a it's a situational basis. I I do think that you should at least if there are rules you shouldn't know them and and not and and honestly not be in such a rush to break them all the time because the rules are I often see some of the standards and rules is there for my benefit. <laughs> There's a reason why when we watch things we are able to process them the way that 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 we do because real life doesn't unfold like anything in cinema or television. You know, that we, we have, people are going to joke forever about, say, Aaron Sorkin dialogue. They love it, but they also know that, like, human beings don't speak that way. You know, people, yeah. none of us are that smart all the time. And we can just trade <laughs> quick. It's, um, it, there was a film that I watched once um, years ago. It was, it was called Juno, where, like, all these young kids were so witty and quippy. And, and it was like, so I think it won an Oscar. Great script. But it's like, this is this isn't real life, you know what I mean? And it's not about hewing to real life. I mean, those rules, um, having a structure, you know, having having conflict between Carol, all these things are set up to actually allow your audience to enjoy and understand it. So I, I think people, when they hear rules, they see rules as a negative thing. But I actually see rules as in many cases, guardrails or training wheels you know, kind of help us right. not drive off a cliff, which right. is, you know, imagine if, oh, you know what, fuck it. I'll write a 90 page first act. Technically that's breaking a rule, but who the hell wants to stay in the first act for 90 pages? You know, <laughs> like you see how absurd that sounds? Right. And that's what I think of. Like, so I don't see rules as like, oh man, the rules, the rules don't let me have any fun. I see the rules as like, oh God, I've got a little bit of guidance. So let me just kind of like paint within these lines for a while. And maybe sometimes I'll do something that's a little bit different. Maybe we'll go outside of those lines. I mean, soul is a great example. You know, Pixar, as you know, the brain trust process, 
You could call that a bunch of rules. You could go outside those rules. You just have to be able to explain yourself, you know, and validate it, like validate it to a room full of really smart people who've tried lots of different ways to do it. And if you can validate it, of course you can break some of those rules, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and so, yeah. <laughs> of course you can, but, but mm-hmm. people, I think they hear rules and they think it's bad. And I see rules more as guardrails and, and, and helping me a tool to kind of help me. Totally yeah. agree. Totally. Yes. I love that. And hundred percent agree. This may yes. be the worst advice, but like, I liked it. I benefited from, I was never the star pupil in my class. I, I barely passed English in high school. Um, and it took a long time for me to understand that storytelling is not necessarily writing. <laughs> like, 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 it, you know, like screenwriting is cinematic dictation. And I've always pictured stories in my head and where, what I'd, where I'd like things to go. And so it really become, so I got better at writing for wanting to express something that I already knew was worth telling at least I thought was in my head. And, um, but the flip side of that is that I've always felt like I could leverage off of my lesser than student status and, and, and just go, I'm always going to be bad. Like I'm always going to be lesser than I'm always going to kind of, so I have that saying, you guys heard me say, like be wrong as fast as you can. I don't, I always, I just like, I will be wrong as fast as I can. (laughs) Like, it's like, like, I just don't, I don't walk in I don't know what it feels like to walk in to start writing, thinking I'm going to do something good. I don't, I've never had that. I've always had the, it's going to like, I, I know what it was like to be a student and watch names that you guys know when they were 19, you know, just knock it out of the park. And I was still there all night for another month to like, get it there. And I learned how to get good by working harder than everybody else. So I just go into everything assuming that's what I'll have to do. And I guess in the long run, that's been my friend because I haven't fallen into the trap too often that it's going to be good. What I've done. <laughs> I think of, like that, just for doing it, like, 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 like I, I still have expectations. It will get good. Right. And you know, fail fast. When people ask me, what are the story rules at Pixar? I'm like, there's two. Is it a good story? Do you have it? This execute, like, is it good? Is that as good as it can get? And two, fail fast was the only ever thing I ever heard at Pixar in terms of mm-hmm. um, like, you know. like you want it to be not just safe, but like you want to look forward to like I'm often saying this in development with people in their first year. OK, can we just get this out of the way? It's whatever you no matter how good you are, the, your first your first draft's not going to be right. Like, I don't care how great we love it. Like history is proven everything about this is going to change. So, so just get it done. Like, like if somebody told you, I promise you in 10 drafts, you will have an Oscar winning screenplay that everybody will want. You would not dick around with the first draft, the second draft that you would be working as fast as you can to get to number 10. Well, I'm here to tell you, and I haven't even met anybody on this podcast yet. That's listening. That's what it's going to take. <laughs> it's going to take 10. Yeah. I mean, I'm a 12 draft guy. I, I mean, say I, minimum I, 10. I, I have a couple that were like, I got to nine and that was with help. But like, I'm telling you, that's how many it's going to take. So, so just get through them. <laughs> Which know? is so hard for those of us that were like overachievers, <laughs> like top of our class, like studying yeah. English literature, like that. And I wasn't top of the class, but like, you know, I was, I expect what I do to be good. Yeah. So yeah. for me, the psychological dissonance of like, embracing and accepting it will suck yeah. is still like or it doesn't or, really i have this like really how well much, the truth is right? but the truth is even there's suck and then there's just not the right answer and you actually if you're any good you're probably going to live in the land of it's not the right answer for a very long time for the bulk of your existence on this story and that that is different than you suck just to be fair yeah. to people I well mean, you don't suck the work the the draft is shitty, right? That right, it's not right. the right answer, right? right? That's another piece that I think is worth. We always mention this, right? You are not your work, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that whole notes thing, which I think is interesting how you take how you don't take notes. I, I mean, love that idea that this, yeah. it's so helpful that to separate it from yourself. This is just not the right answer, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, we had Ed Solomon on as a guest and he approaches oh, every wow. day and he looks at his script and says, what is it today? <laughs> what is it today? And I thought, oh, that's so good. Like, you don't have to decide what it is and yeah. how good it is. What and is I it love today? That, I love that he objectifies it because you, we've all seen this. The, eventually it becomes, you realize, oh, it always was a, ch a child we're raising. It's not my child. It wasn't, it's not me. It's like, it maybe came from me or, or I had some parenting, uh, you know, advice or involvement, but like, it's its own thing. And it's going to, and it's, and the more it develops, the more it wants, it knows what it wants to wear, what its interests are. And I'm either going to be fighting my parental, you know, hopes and dreams on them and just forcing this, or I'm just going to start listening to this kid and let it be what it wants to be raised up to be, you know? And I often think of any iteration of an outline, a script, a draft, something up on a board, post-it notes as simply snapshots of something that is moving through time and space. And the more I can keep my brain like, asking that question, which is, what is it now? What is it now? What is it now? Like all day, every day, what is it now? And if it's this, that means this. And not getting so precious because you know how it is. You got to like, <laughs> you got to have faith that if you're in this for the long haul, one word, one phrase, one sentence, one scene, one script, unfortunately, doesn't mean you don't work your ass off on making this the best it can be but it's all part of a long flow and these things aren't like i don't personally believe in the whatever is it the aristotelian idea i, I don't know like where you chip away you just chip away it, it exists and you're just chipping away everything that's not it i don't buy that i believe that it's an infinite set of possibilities and you're making choices and you can go this way or that way and if you go that way it means this and if you go whatever just like your character, because even getting some emerging writers to understand that, that the characters by their choices is creating the storyline. Exactly. It's not the story exists and they're just moving through it. They made a choice and therefore the story went that direction, which sounds so simple. And yet even I sometimes catch myself as a writer not doing that, not really giving all of that to the main character to create all of that power in their behavior and choices. Well, then now's where the chess game gets three-dimensional and I think it gets like nine-dimensional ultimately or maybe infinitely dimensional which is then it becomes not about you creating an outline that your character follows goes through or your plot or whatever you want to call it but rather your character is rich enough that they can surprise you and then when they surprise you you have the dexterity to go wait what is this telling me Mm -hmm. and step back as the so-called controlling God or whatever you want to call it and go, wait, now what is my new world here? And then step back into the character. And it's that dance in a weird way. It's that collaboration between you and your story and you and your characters. And to me, that's the next level of thinking, which is, oh, this isn't about me coming up with a story and then making characters go through it. It's me assessing at the deepest, most organic level, what is the story becoming? And like Lauren, you were talking about how, you know, parenting, it's parenting. It's like, I thought when I had a kid, my first kid, I had two kids and I thought I have two kids when I thought <laughs> I'm going to have a child and when we found out it's going to be a boy, I said, my boy is going to be, I felt like I'm about to sing a song from Oklahoma, <laughs> but my, my boy is going to be this way and parenting is going to be this and he's going to be like this. And then uh -huh. he out of the uh -huh. room <laughs> and he looked at me and everything went out the window. Uh -huh. Suddenly my job was not to go, this is the direction I'm taking you in, son. It was, oh, I see there are parts of him that are part of me. And I feel sorry for him for that. <laughs> many times in life, this is going to be your life work, getting rid of that part, yeah, <laughs> understanding that part. But as it pertains to this, your job as a parent quickly, you realize, becomes 
not trying to shoehorn a kid into some <laughs> trajectory, but rather how do you guide this person that is of you and with you, but into the, the best manifestation of what they can be. And they tell you that. And then when I had a second kid, oh, was I wrong about all my thoughts about what it means to be a parent? Because <laughs> guess what? It applies entirely differently to the other child because your job is not to parent them the same way you parent this. Because it's the same with your projects. Like you get a new project and it's like, well, everybody's like, well, you're a pro and you're getting paid. So isn't it easy? And it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like it's a brand new thing. Like I, I love Ed that you're doing a musical, but I'm sure part of your brain is like, Ed, a musical. Now we have to learn a whole new thing. Like, it's with every script, every script. Do you do have this where you go, wait, it's not just how do I write this script? It's, Wait, how do how I write? Right? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. literally every time. So wait a minute, wait a minute. What do I do when I write something? Like how? And actually, I don't mind that mindset. I like that mindset because it forces me not to go, but what I do is now I start the outline of it, or now I break this part, and now I break that part. Everyone is different. Everyone's different. Everyone's Every different. part of everyone is different. Like you start with, or at least for me, I start, I'll start down a path with it. I'll start outlining and then I'll go, it isn't working for me to do this anymore. Now I'm going to talk it about, about it or now I'm going to put it up on a board or actually this part doesn't want to be as detailed or it's the strangest thing. Everyone yeah. is different. So uh, Ben asked about pitching in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, as someone with social anxiety, he's asking this question, what if you are concerned the people in the room won't get it? Do you prepare backup material or go on charisma? Um, should Ben take improv or public speaking? What's a good way uh, to prepare for that? Well, that improv is not a bad idea. I did, you know, I did theater as a kid uh, in high school. Um, that certainly helped a little bit um, in me overcoming a sense of stage fright. But, you know, one thing I, one piece of advice, I can't remember who told it to me about pitching was that, um, think of it as just telling a funny dinner party story, you know, don't think of it as like you're on a stage and you're, you're, you're trying to, um, perform to an audience that's there waiting to be, um, moved because then like, I, I will freeze up. Um, but if I'm like sitting in a room with a bunch of people that I have maybe some kind of connection to, and we start with kind of small talk and then I kind of go, you know what, let me tell you this funny story. And you tell a funny story, I feel like that's the best pitch because then you're kind of almost involving people in it as well. So when I can, when I can, when I can try to get the room down to like, we're all the same here and we're trying to figure out what the best version of this movie is, or you want to hear a really good movie and I have a good movie, then I feel like the pitch starts to it kind of greases the wheels a little bit if that's if that makes sense but i will say like stage fright's a big thing for me always has been and like i will pitch things and then i will um start to be a little like that self-aware switch goes on in my head and i will trip myself up you know i will like go and literally the, i will trip in the pitch i'm about to pitch i'm about to pitch in an hour and a half <laughs> i'm about to pitch to pete doctor in an hour and a half and oh. um like the one thing that I, I and, and Pete and I worked for years together, why would I still get um, stage fright in front of Pete Doctor? Well, of course I do, you know, of course I do. So, you know, what Bill I, Hader, he, he has, he has anxiety too. And so he would say that when he was going on Sunday Live, he would intentionally say the first line wrong <laughs> because now he's made the mistake. So it does. And then he would just relax. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah. a that's a fun way to do it too. I do something that I think a lot of people do and probably a lot of women do, which is I'll pitch something. And before mm -hmm. I give anyone a chance to like respond, I'll just say, or maybe that's a terrible idea. Or uh -huh. here's why that's terrible, or here's why that's stupid, <laughs> right? I don't even leave enough breath or space in the room for someone to actually like hear what I said and respond yeah. because I just yeah. so I am working on not doing that yeah for sure because <laughs> you have to think it's a good idea or why are you pitching it in the room sure. like in yeah, terms right. of that pitching around the table um you know it's you know and you know people always have those little phrases which sometimes they do make you not you know punch them in the face or whatever but <laughs> mm -hmm. I, yeah I think that it's that is part of the process is, is learning and I think improv, yeah. improv is a great idea what advice do you have for screenwriters of color to break in and how to deal with racism in the industry. 
And I know that's a very large question, um, but let's just hear kind of your first thoughts about that. Well, I mean, it's, it's a good question. It, it's funny because a lot of people ask me about when, when, when I in Miami, who did I think was right, Malcolm or Sam? And my answer is um, not, you're not, you're, both of them and neither of them, it's situational. And the reality of it is that this argument that they're having um, is a debate that goes on in my psyche, like on a daily basis. It's, it's, it's me talking to myself when I'm making decisions about how much am I going to be willing to compromise in this situation? Which hills am I going to be willing to die on? And, and this isn't just me as a black man. It's something that and if you're Asian, if you're a woman, there's always going to be situations where, you know, you could take a stand on this situation, but we cannot die on every hill. <laughs> right. And, you, and it's up to you to decide what hills um, you were willing to die on. I, I'm a firm believer that in order to get where we're going as a community, it takes, sometimes we got to be like Sam Cooke about it. We got to work within the system and bring about change that might be a little bit more subtle, but over the long term is going to have a bigger impact. Then other times we have to burn the shit down. You know, it's so egregious that we got to be like Malcolm X about it and just be like, fuck this place, fuck all of you, I'm out the door, bye, wow. Like, but it really, and I've, and I've done both. You know, I, I've, I'm fully willing to admit that I've been that guy who's done both of those things, but it's about, um, you know, which hills are you willing to die? Because you can't die on every hill. You know, okay. at the end of the day, I am an artist and I want to be free to be an artist. I, I don't want to have to always just be focusing on like the race of, and, and racial issues with everything that I'm working on. I want to have the freedom to tell stories like the stories that I love um, so much. And I, I think a lot about Jackie Robinson because it, I didn't realize I was the first black co-director at Pixar. I didn't realize I was the first credited screenplay writer at Black. I didn't know any of that shit, you know, until someone told me. And I thought about it because, you know, being first sucks for any number of reasons. But one of the things about Jackie Robinson that I always thought was fascinating was that Jackie Robinson was not the best player in the Negro Leagues, you know, when he was called up to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, Satchel Paige and a number of other players were better than Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was the right player. And what I mean by the right player is he was going to be capable of putting up with a certain amount of bullshit and not walking away. Because when you're the first, you often have to swallow some things, you know? Um, you you got to, like, swallow a few things so that you can move the needle forward, not just for yourself, but for the people who come after you. You have to, you have to um, be, make, be a good example. Mm. Be a good example so that you're not, you and your entire group is not seen as problematic so that people want to bring more people who look like you in after you're, you're gone. And, and that was really what Jackie Robinson was. He was, Branch Rickey knew that when he was called the N-word, he wasn't going to wrap a baseball bat around every racist head in, in the stadium, though he would have been within his rights to do so. How would that have moved? You see what I'm saying? How would it? Yeah. And that's really what it's about, is that, you know, there, even people being well-meaning will often do things that are offensive. But, you know, you gotta, you, there are people out there who wish me harm. They're my enemies. The people, my coworkers are not my enemies, <laughs> okay? These are well-meaning creatives who I step in it sometimes when it comes to other groups, you know? The, same, the person who's being bullied on Monday is bullying someone else on Tuesday, you know? Someone's saying something that I think is racist towards me, and then the next day I'm doing something misogynistic towards someone else, who's then doing something homophobic towards someone else. We've all got blind spots and we have to allow people to be imperfect, and I think that's a firm belief of mine, being a journalist, which means that I had to be in news organizations for two decades where I was often one of the only black faces. But it was more important to me that I get more black people into these organizations and see more black representation than it was for me to be happy about everything that everyone around me was doing all the time. And I think that element of my personality has contributed to my success. I'm not saying it's for everyone. But I'm, I am saying that, like, I don't think it's necessary to make 
such a big deal about everything because Hollywood in its base level is fucking absurd. Like <laughs> Hollywood is Hollywood is racist, it's sexist, it's ageist. Everyone has their head up their ass. Everything about Hollywood, it's it's it lures literally the most fucked up people in the world in pursuit of instant fame and fortune. So like who <laughs> I'm, yeah. I, I could find something to be mad about like all the time. But instead, I, again, I'm, I'm on a bit of a mission where I'm like trying to move the dial forward. Again, you know your own limits. You know what you can and can't put up with. Um, a lot of people who know me say that like if, if I would have had more patience with certain things, I could have had success 10, 15 years ago. I was willing to not have that success because I had my limits. There are mm -hmm. things I wouldn't write. There's things that I wouldn't do. Only you know what's what's going to work for you um but you also have to be willing to like stand up for those things knowing that when it's not you there's a thousand people who will happily do it you know like that's the thing none of us are not if the, the worst mistake you can ever make in this business is feeling like you are not replaceable hmm. or that you're you're the key without you it won't work or it won't succeed that is the most laughable attitude anyone can have any any one of us doing it this at the even at the high level it's still highly competitive. Yes. You know, it, it stays highly competitive. You mean to tell me you think there's really like only what? How many people do you think can technically write a Star Wars movie? So Megan asked, what most engages you in the first act of a script? Dialogue. It is an art form. And if I am if the people are real, that's my first, you know, and I'm, am, I don't consciously think about this when I'm reading, I'm just reading, no, but, right, right. but I keep going because I'm with them. And then I get to, you know, theme and what's it about. And, um, you know, but I really, because bad dialogue, will stop me in my tracks. I'm just like, oh, I mean, how am I going to get to anything else if, if I don't feel like these people really exist? Do you feel like it's the same in both assessing a TV script and a uh, feature script that dialogue has that same weight? For me, for me, it is. What about now, you, Yeah, go ahead, Jill. No, but you're about to say something about me. What are you about to say? Well, it just it it varies too because if 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 you've pitched to me ahead of time what I'm about to read if I've heard ahead of time what this TV series is going to be about or I've heard uh, if I've been given some sort of context before the read I'll read a little bit longer even if the dialogue isn't what I you know but I'll catch up to the fact that I'm really not digging it. Hmm. Okay. Even though I love the concept you just pitched me, I'm sorry. It's just not on the page. Have you ever been you know? reading a spec that somebody sent you in, an agent or anybody, and not finish the whole thing? That you, or, or do you always try to finish the whole thing? This was a question asked by Alyssa. How many pages of a script do producers generally read before making a decision about whether it's worth developing? I think Julie's probably finished every script she ever read because that's just who she is. I cannot tell you how many first acts I have read that I have loved like that I literally can feel the movie and then it just goes away for me and then I skip to the end if I if I'm going and you've lost me I I'm not gonna I'm gonna skip because if you end it if I read the last 10 pages and you've ended it in a way that's surprising to me I'm going to go back and read the whole thing. That's so that interesting was, because as a writer, I'm always like, first acts are easy. And yet we get caught in them and we, make, we, we write them over and over and over and over because they feel so juicy and easy. Because <laughs> second acts are so hard. So hard. And third acts so, can be easy. But second acts are so hard. So it's interesting clearly. that even as a reader, you're feeling that too. But I will tell you guys, I mean, that's so interesting that you say that because I find we read so many scripts, you guys, so many scripts. And if you ask me what, grabs me in the mm -hmm. beginning and makes me keep reading 
It is, am I curious? Am I curious about this person? Am I curious about this situation? Am I curious about what this writer is wanting to say? It's 100% for me. Am I curious about, about this narrative? And, and are, you ever, are you ever curious, though, if the writing isn't great? Uh, I find that somebody who can't handle decent dialogue is almost never, it's part and parcel. And I don't separate it because for me, character is plot, character is dialogue, character is all of it. So um, somebody who is a strong enough writer to make me curious is also, is also writing dialogue that if not genius is at least you know, not enough to make me put it down. And I just but, want to say to our, to our listeners, because um, I can, I, I, that this is, that what they're actually talking about, you guys, is not like, you know, we, we often get mixed up that this is like the genius. The genius writer will make me curious. The genius writer will write amazing dialogue no. in the first act. That this is what they're actually talking about that I want you to hear is they're talking about craft. That you've taken the time to work on your craft and you can layer the script in all those layers of craft that you need all the layers of craft that they're they're saying they're looking for they're listening for which then create this curiosity so all of this is doable totally doable um but it's what they're looking for by the time you're ready to hand a script to this level to a producer in hollywood listen to the level of craft they need which is why we go back to write every day right because that's how you're going to get to the ability to do what they're what they're looking for and and i and i know you feel like and, and, and you're right, because I've been there with you, right? That second acts are really hard. But I will tell you guys that, especially with newer writers that I'm reading, it is, it, it is so much more common that the third act is a disappointment for me. Mm. So much more common. Because, um, because it is, I am not emotionally full. When I, when I finish a script, I do not want to be able to just you know, toss it aside and start another script. I need, I need to, I really want to not want to leave that world. I want to be in that world. It actually happened to me, Bonnie knows with one of the scripts I read from the nickel finals this year, I couldn't, I couldn't get over how good it was. Um, and it, and, and it was because it finished just as, as strongly as it started and it paid off everything that had been laid out. Well, let's act. talk about that. Like for you, and I know you're just doing this off the top of your head, but for you guys, when what is a strong third act? It it pays off uh, what it's seeded probably from Act One, right? It's it's still juicy in its world and its imagination, right? Is there anything else that you can give our listeners that what is a great third act for you, Julie or Bonnie? I want it. I, I mean, I, I the word that keeps coming up in my head is it is emotional. And I don't mean that it has to be happy emotion or it could be happy. It could be sad. It could, it could even be, um, it could even be, uh, I, by emotion, I don't mean like I'm crying out of happiness or sadness. It could mean I'm disturbed or it could mean I'm inspired. Um, but it's, and it is innovative in that I feel like it's bringing something new to my experience as a lived human. And I don't mean that it's not, it doesn't follow a formula. Like I could read a romantic comedy, which means that I knew from the first act who was going to end up together. I, that, could, that could be fine. But the way in which it transpires and the way in which the movie ends, I feel like I have something new in my, in my quiver of human arrows that I had, that I had not experienced before. Again, this is craft, like how to write something emotional, right? That takes a lot of practice and trying over and over and over, right? Like writing, she cries, right? Or she's sad is not enough, right? You, in order to really deliver on those emotional descriptions, it takes a lot of work and failure. And it takes a lot of drafts to even realize consciously what is that thing you're trying to say that in the third act is going to become so active that Julie's going to feel like, oh, this cathartic experience, right? Um, and it's also, I think, a lot to do with relationship, that the relationships in the movie are heading towards a place in the climax that 
are, are satisfying. Again, does that mean they're together? Not necessarily. But that relationship is reaching an emotional point in the climax of the movie that is just deeply satisfying, um, I think is also really important. All right. What an amazing show. And thanks again to Jess, our intern, for putting together such a beautifully curated episode. Um, as always, we're going to read some of your amazing Apple podcast reviews. I'm going to start with Vale Pacific Northwest, who says Megan Lorian are lava warriors. Thank you, Megan Lorian, for suiting up each podcast episode with your armor of brave and raw reality, teaching emerging writers and experienced writers to check their ego at the door and swan dive into the lava. I love that. No matter how painful and disturbing that may be, that creating a work of art is worth it and that we are not alone in this battle. Thank you also to Jeff for being our emerging writer avatar. I'm happy to be your emerging writer avatar and bearing your soul as you trek along in your own screenwriting journey. Uh, what a beautiful review. Vail Pacific Northwest, thanks so much. Um, our audience is such an essential part of what we do, so we really appreciate the beautiful words. All right, Roberto C. Tapia says, thanks for this class. I'm so inspired right now after listening to the last episode with Andrew Stanton. Great questions and so much learning. It's truly amazing to realize we're not alone in this writing process and that we all feel or go through similar emotions when creating stories. The best we can do is to learn from others. We're so lucky nowadays we can get all this information from a podcast. Thank you for asking Andrew Stanton's favorite writing Bibles, Def Getting These New Books. Cheers and congrats for helping a new generation of writers around the world. Um, Roberto, it's our pleasure. Finally, Nostra Vita says, how does this exist? The first episode I listened to of this podcast over a year ago left me feeling like I had a huge secret. How are these professional women writers sitting down with me every week to tell me their craft? I found more encouragement from their belly laughs and honesty than any other script writing podcast. The latest Andrew Stanton one has too much helpful information in it to miss. Happy binging. Uh, thank you, Nostra. We really appreciate the review. And the reason we read these reviews on air every week is not only to, you know, shout out our community and kind of create that family family community that we love so much about the show, but um, we also want to feature your writing. And uh, what happens with these Apple Podcast reviews is when we get those five stars, it helps bump up our show. So, you know, if you've ever had even a single moment where this show has been valuable for you or served your craft, um, we need to share it with other people, right? We're trying to continue to grow our community as much as we can. So reviewing the podcast is one of the quickest ways to do that, and we really appreciate it, and I will continue to read your reviews on air. Finally, of course, we have our Facebook group that um, I feel like is just becoming more and more essential, even in my own writing process every day. So if you haven't joined that group, go ahead over and do that. And uh, we will be back on air with a new episode next week, and we can't wait.